0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
1: Post, this is Sarah Kaplan.
2: Hi, this is Elahi Azadi with The Washington Post.
0: Hey, This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 15th. Today, why small-dollar donors will matter in 2020, India's radical move in Kashmir, and how to make it in the world of audiobooks. So when I'm on Facebook and I see an ad from uh, Elizabeth Warren or from Bernie Sanders or Kamala Harris, and it's like, text so-and-so to donate $10 to my campaign, that's usually going through this back-end channel, ActBlue.
3: Correct. My name is Anu Narayan Swami. I'm a data reporter on the politics team. Since last week, Anu has been
0: breaking down this data on all the political donations made through this online fundraising platform, Act ActBlue.
3: ActBlue is a vehicle through which people who want to give to Democrats, in either in Congress, at the federal level, state level, or at the local level, can make small-dollar contributions.
0: Small-dollar means any donation of less than $200 given at one time.
3: This data set that we analyzed looks at only the ActBlue donations, which is just the small-money donations coming via the ActBlue platform. In addition to that, there could be a few people that are writing out checks for $5 or $10 and mailing it into the campaign, or seeing somebody who is at a campaign event and passing on a check or even cash. It's become an important metric of how a candidate is doing. And it's important in terms of polling. It's also important because small money is a metric for whether they make it to the debate stage or not. So because of all these reasons, it's increasingly important in this race than it has been in past years.
0: And it does seem like we're in this new age where people are taking these small dollar donations seriously as an ability to track who was doing well. That it used to be that people were only paying attention to the polls. And I remember that in 2016, when President Trump was running, that people talked about the fact that he was getting lots of small dollar donations, but weren't really taking that seriously as an indicator of what's to come. And it feels like that's really changed now where people are looking at who is getting money from random regular people and – taking that as a sign of who has real movement in their campaign.
3: That's correct. Right now, if you go and look at what we've collected in terms of the data, you'll see that Senator Sanders is the person who's got the most number of donations from a vast majority of the geographical area of the country. And that's an important metric to see who his supporters are He's raised $30 million, and he's gotten donations from more than 746,000 individuals. And that's followed by Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's raised $17 million from over 400,000 people. And on third place would be Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who's raised $15 million from 376,000 people.
0: And it's interesting the fact that these are candidates that are, yes, in the top tier of of where people are polling, but are not like this isn't the same order that we're seeing from actual polling, right? Like Joe Biden isn't on this list. Kamala Harris isn't on this list. And I wonder what that says to you.
3: I think it's a combination of polling and these numbers that has to be taken in perspective when you're looking at who's leading and who is uh, at second place and things like that. Who are the
0: kinds of people who are giving these small-dollar donations?
3: I think it's a really interesting mix of people. We've talked to people who've given $1 to 20 candidates, and there are different reasons they're doing it. It's because they like somebody's debate performance or they are into what they said in a campaign speech. And we also came across a few other people who are giving $25 or $100, and They are giving to two or three specific candidates because those are the candidates that attract them the most. I talked to a woman in Florida who said that she really likes Senator Warren. She liked the plans and she had very specific reasons on why she was supporting Senator uh, Warren. And she had contributed to her campaign various amounts over a period of time.
4: My name is Shirley Aaron. I am from Havana, Florida, which is about 11 miles from Tallahassee, Florida, and I am 78 years old. I have donated to Elizabeth Warren, and I think I've donated probably a little over $300.
3: What we're seeing is that only a fifth of these number of people are giving to multiple candidates. For instance, from the data, we can see that Senator Bernie Sanders supporters, 80 percent of the money that Senator Sanders is getting is from people who are giving only to his campaign. So he has a very solid support. And then the other two people who have a really high percentage of unique donors who are not giving to anybody else is Andrew Yang and uh, Joe Biden. So
0: other candidates who are getting lots of small dollar donations like Elizabeth Warren though they may get a lot of donations a lot of the people who are donating to them are also kind of willing to donate to other people.
4: I've donated to Kamala Harris approximately $75 and I have donated to Marianne Williamson $25 and Tulsi Gabbard $25.
3: It's interesting to note the combination of candidates that are getting donations from the same people. For instance, we're seeing that Senator Warren and Senator Harris are sharing 60,000 common donors. So that's an interesting trend.
0: What were some of the other surprises you heard from some of these donors who have given to multiple campaigns?
3: One of the interesting things that uh, several people told us was that they gave to somebody after a debate performance or they gave to somebody a few days or even hours after that because they wanted to see them back on the debate stage.
4: I donated to Marianne Williamson because I think that she has something different to say that needs to be heard. So I would like to see her as a part of the next, um, next debate.
3: So there was this one person who said he was a Republican but was giving to all 20 candidates because he wanted to create havoc on the debate stage.
4: <laughs> My name is Mike Kumblevitz. I live in Spokane Valley, Washington. I did donate to every Democratic candidate, only a dollar, with the exception of Marianne Williamson. I donated some extra there. 2016 was terrible for the Republicans because they had so many candidates, and hopefully the Democrats will be wise to drop out a little earlier, uh, because I can tell which candidates would be able to defeat Trump and which wouldn't. I want as many people up on that debate stage as possible looking to create chaos.
0: I wonder how that will how that will turn out. Did did you? Is that like a is it like a trend or is is well, it just this one Well, we talked to guy? just one
3: person. Maybe it's a trend. I mean, there's two point three million people that have <laughs> given. So, so as the campaign
0: progresses and we get to a point where we're seeing fewer candidates, do you expect that we'll start to see a shift and see fewer of these donors who are trying to donate to multiple campaigns or spreading their money around, and that there will be more donors who are coalescing around one candidate?
3: I think that is likely to happen as more and more people drop out of the race. And we see that there's a shift in mindset or a shift in polling that shows that one candidate is doing better than the other. They will coalesce around a couple at least. And we'll also see that uh, the amount of money that each of these candidates will be raising via small dollars will increase.
0: Why do you think the Democratic Party is putting so much stock in these small dollar donations in a way that we haven't seen before, that they're making it part of the requirements for being on the debate stage?
3: Small money has become an important metric to see how a candidate is faring, how much support a candidate has all across the nation. One of the key things that the Democratic Party is looking at is not just how much money they're getting from small dollars, also saying that you should be getting small dollars from every state or at least so many states. So it's not enough that Senator Harris is getting all the small money from California. It has to be spread out throughout the country. And I think some of this might be a learning from 2016, where Senator Sanders had a wide-ranging grassroots support, but was not the candidate ultimately.
0: The fact that there is so much emphasis for these Democratic candidates on their small-dollar donation hall, do you think that ends up making whoever is the nominee stronger or weaker when it comes to actually getting past the primaries, when it comes to actually getting to the general election?
3: Small money donors is great for just paring down the campaign and seeing who the last two, three, four people would be. But finally, when it's a one on one with President Trump, you need a boatload of money to make it and to win president trump already has 580 million he's raised via his campaign the joint fundraising committees he has with the party and the republican party itself and that's a ton of money to go up against that and to compete against that you need support from the party you need support from maybe even super PACs that are going to come into play much later in the game
0: A new Narayan Swami is a data reporter with The Post.
1: Kashmir is a region in the Himalayan mountain range that sits in what we know as India, Pakistan, and to a lesser extent, China.
0: Joanna Slater is the India bureau chief for The
1: Post. The reason why this region is so disputed and so tense, you have to rewind the clock a little bit, actually to 72 years ago. Almost exactly, which is when British India was partitioned. That's when India became independent and Pakistan was created. One territory, Jammu and Kashmir, was along the border. It became a part of India,
0: even though it's majority Muslim and India is majority Hindu. In exchange, it was granted a semi autonomous status until last week.
2: On the morning of August 5, Kashmir woke up to an unprecedented clampdown.
0: Niha Masi is an India correspondent for The Post.
2: The current blackout in Kashmir is the worst ever facing the violence hit region that has seen several internet shutdowns in the past. Mobile, internet, cable TV have been suspended by the Indian authorities, and for the first time, even landline phones have been cut off.
0: Foreign journalists need special permits from the government, so it's nearly impossible to enter Kashmir right now. But because Niha is an Indian national, she was able to visit this disputed territory.
2: Srinagar, the capital of India controlled Kashmir that I visited, felt like a coast town whose citizens had left in a hurry. The streets are awash with gun toting soldiers instead of people. People remain locked inside their homes with no phone service, no internet network, or even cable television. In other areas, tear gas smells pervade the air after protesters clash with security forces. Chance of go India, go back, and we want freedom rent the air during protests. Srinagar today is an angry town, seething with resentment, waiting for an outburst. Right now, most people seemed to be in shock at the sudden announcement by the Indian government. They were still coming to terms with what has happened. Most of the people I spoke to were angry at the stealthy way India announced the decision unilaterally without taking Kashmiri people into confidence. On Friday, thousands of people came out to march against what they call India's occupation. The protests have only made the Indian government come down harder and tighten the restrictions. It is unlikely, though, that even if the protests grow, there would be a rollback of the controversial decision. Kashmiris have long been disenchanted with the Indian government and what they call its excessive use of force in the region. And this move has only further alienated them.
1: So last week, India effectively undid seven decades of history in Kashmir.
0: Again, let's join us later.
1: Now we're entering really uncharted territory for Kashmir, for India, uh, for Pakistan, and no one really knows where where this will lead. One of the things India did to accommodate Kashmir back uh, around the time that it was it itself was becoming a country was to include a special article in its constitution, which gave the state a certain measure of autonomy. And over the last seven decades, you know, that autonomy has eroded to some extent. But there are still some key exceptions. So, for instance, Indians from other parts of the country were not allowed to buy land in Kashmir or to hold government jobs there. And this provision, which is called Article 370 was really viewed by Kashmiris as uh, an important guarantor uh, of their own uh, rights uh, and of their own special status within India. But now that has changed, what exactly happened? So this provision, which is known as Article 370, has long been a target of Hindu nationalists, uh, India's prime minister, uh, Narendra Modi. humne <laughs> promised during the recent election campaign that one of the things he would do would be to get rid of Article
4: 370.
1: So on August 5th, the Prime Minister announced that the government had decided to get rid of this provision.
4: Kashmir's
2: special status ends today. This is a historic day. Article 370 giving Jammu and Kashmir special status has been scrapped, abolished by a presidential order.
1: And it even it went even further, which is uh, one of the more uh, dramatic parts of this. They not only revoked the powers of this provision in India's constitution, but they stripped Jammu and Kashmir of its statehood. So there's no really good analogy here, but let's say you took Massachusetts and said from now on it would be like Puerto Rico. Hmm. It's, it doesn't really work, but it's similar in that they took Jammu and Kashmir and they turned it from a state into something that's called a union territory here which is a second-class status that gives it less control over its own affairs. And that's never happened before.
0: And they can just do that just like that? They can just unilaterally decide, Kashmir, you're no longer a state?
1: So there are some questions about what the government did. And that's something that India's Supreme Court will almost certainly uh, have to decide in the coming weeks, whether what the government did was constitutional. But there are also more philosophical questions about whether what it did was uh, democratic. So certainly the way this provision was written, it was supposed to—any changes to this provision were supposed to involve the consent of elected leaders in Kashmir itself, and, and there has been no consultation you know, with Kashmiris or with local political representatives about this decision.
0: So you said that this is something that Prime Minister Modi and Hindu nationalists have been talking about for a while. Why do they want to do that?
1: They want to do that because Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir, is India's only Muslim majority state. And I think it's fair to say that people of that political persuasion are not crazy about Kashmir having a kind of any kind of special privileges. Uh, they see uh, it as just another part of India, and so it should be treated as such. And the government argues uh, that these steps are necessary and that once the shock of this decision wears off, it will usher in what the prime minister has called a a new dawn for Kashmir, where there will be more development uh, and more peace. Now, that is uh, untested, an untested theory, uh, to say the least.
0: So what have we heard so far from China and from Pakistan, which are the two vested interests in this region?
1: So China's not really happy about this, but China is not really the the major uh, antagonist in in this particular dispute. Pakistan however is is irate uh, Pakistan has long seen itself as the defender of uh, Kashmiri Muslims and the defender of the Kashmiri cause it has you know taken various steps to protest the decision from cutting trade ties with India to um, Uh, withdrawing diplomats. Now, the real question is, India has long accused Pakistan of supporting and sheltering the militants that are involved in this insurgency. And, you know, that support uh, from various parts of Pakistan's security and intelligence establishment has kind of waxed and waned over the years. So uh, the question is, you know, whether after this decision, Pakistan will in any way lend covert support to these militants once again.
0: And if that's the big question coming out of this, is there an expectation that this decision by the Indian government might precipitate violence?
1: Absolutely, that's the fear. There's a fear that it could lead to violent protests, there's a fear it could lead to further radicalization of young people, there's a fear that it could lead to a more active uh, militancy in the Kashmir Valley. Now, none of that may happen. Uh, So far, thankfully, there has not been uh, large-scale violence. That is partly because there are very severe restrictions in place in Kashmir at the moment, and we don't exactly know what's going to happen once those restrictions are removed or even in the weeks and months after that.
0: Joanna Slater and Neha Masi cover India for the Post. Thursday is Independence Day in India. <laughs> Prime Minister Narendra Modi took the opportunity to defend the government's decision to strip Jammu and Kashmir's special status. He said that the move would help India's development and was in the territory's best interest. And now, one more thing. What it takes to become an audiobook narrator.
3: I will say one thing. I never took you for a Ford, man. Come on, Devon said, as he slipped behind the steering wheel. This car is more than a Ford. This is a classic. Feel that leather, soft and supple, just like a woman's cheek.
5: When I went to Edge Studios, I sat in on a lesson between David... McKeel, who goes by the trade name David Sadson, and his coach was Johnny Heller, who's narrated more than 800 audiobooks, and he's been in the game for quite some time.
0: That's Travis Deschong, a reporter on the Post style desk. A few weeks ago, he went up to New York to spend some time with people who are trying to break into the field of audiobook narration.
5: In general, being a new narrator, it's a grind, because you need to build yourself up, you need to build up your own reputation, and that means adding to your own portfolio, which then entails taking a lot of low paying or unpaid work just to have experience, just to have clips. And the rates for new narrators depend on their own experience, the size of the publisher and how long a publishing company expects a book to take. Like up to $50 for a smaller publisher. And then I think for medium and larger publishers, it ranges between $100 to $350 an hour. But that's per finished hour. That's not per hour of work. The ratio is usually about six hours of actual work in real time to one finished hour. So you'll be compensated for 10 hours of work, but it might take you 60 hours in total. You need to be able to sit still for hours at a time, essentially staring at words. And you can't fidget, move your hands too much because, of course, those sounds we picked up. You need to speak unaccented American English. You have to be able to read cold copy because when you're doing audiobooks, there's no time to memorize all of that. And that's the key. It's it's sounding like you know what you're talking about. It's sounding like you're inside the character's head. It's creating an illusion in a lot of ways, which is why the craft is such a difficult one. But it can be a really mesmerizing one when you're really good at it.
0: David McKeel works with a coach, Johnny Heller, who has narrated more than 800 audiobooks. He does everything from highbrow biographies to children's books to the genre fiction that they worked on when Travis was sitting in.
5: And so they were reading a selection of Cheris Hodge's book called Recipe for Desire.
3: What is it with men comparing cars to women all the time? Because, Devon said, nothing drives us crazier than a beautiful woman
5: or a fast car. And they're doing this scene where The main character, Marie, is with her object of interest, Devon, and they're going to Presbyterian Hospital because she twisted her ankle at the soup kitchen she works at. And so they're flirting in his Ford Mustang as they go on the way down.
4: Okay. First, I never took you for a Ford man. Okay. I mean, he's hipper than a Ford. A Ford's your dad's car. That's what she's saying. I never took you for a Ford man. Yeah. Now his response come on, man. Look at this. So you're bragging about your car. Right. You're doing it with an aura of subtlety, which I don't think is here. Okay. He's saying, "This car's this car's a classic. Feel that leather. Feel. Remember with the the the, 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 uh, the vowel sounds. Yeah. Feel. They say feel. It. Come on, feel that leather."
5: Audiobook narration, in a lot of ways, is like acting. It's a performative art, but it's one where instead of having full utility of your body and your your face and your physicality, you you just have to focus on your voice. And both Heller and David, both of them had stand-up backgrounds, comedic backgrounds, and, and theatrical backgrounds. But they felt that audiobook narration scratched that itch in a way that was a little more explorative and fun. Because you get to play every single character in a story when you're narrating an audiobook. You know, I think what Heller said to me was that, yeah, you, you know, you might want to be King Lear on, on the stage, but not everyone can be King Lear. But when you're narrating the audiobook, yeah, you, you can be King Lear and all of his daughters and Gloucester and everyone else. And there is a fun in that.
0: Travis DeShong is a style reporter for The Post.
5: <laughs> I don't want to toot my own horn. Heller said that if I don't stay in journalism. I may have a future in audiobook narration.
0: That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's show, Aretha Franklin and how her music shaped people's lives.
5: So I went for the biggest people I could think of. Paul Simon, Carol King, Oprah.
0: Wait, Oprah... Like Oprah, Oprah? Oprah! My favorite song is Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves. That is exactly how I feel. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.